I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 8. As we resume our study of this first gospel, we saw in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in the so-called Sermon on the Mount that Jesus reveals himself to be Lord of the law. And he explains that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And then he, throughout the course of the sermon, reveals that, if anything, his standard of holiness has been ratcheted up. And that instead of looking at precepts and and written codes, we need to be getting to the heart of the matter. And so the sermon concludes... And now we have two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, in which in rapid fashion, Matthew is going to give us examples of what exactly Jesus is Lord of. Over what exactly does he have authority? Remember, this gospel's aim is to get you to get to the place where you say, Jesus is God's anointed. He is the Messiah. And in him will I place my faith and my allegiance. So hear now the words of Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold... A leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. 
and the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. Jesus, we thank you that you came to take our illnesses and bear our diseases. Lord, we ask that we would see you as our healer, our only hope. Lord, grant that even now we would believe and we would obey. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. As I've said in the past, and as I kind of uh, alluded, um, the Gospels are not a biography of Jesus, okay? Especially if you want to understand biography in the modern sense of the word. This is not a dispassionate look at the life and times of Jesus, starting with his birth and then preceding chronicling events uh, through the end of his life. Um, I've, I've been reminded of, of how starkly different the Gospels are in terms of biographical information. I'm, I'm presently reading a fantastic three-part biography of Theodore Roosevelt by, by Edmund Morris. It is, it is fantastic. Um, and as I was reading, I'm in the middle of the second book, uh, Theodore Rex. It chronicles his, his time as president of the United States. And I was reading this, this section uh, of an incident that happened early in his first administration on Wednesday, October 16th, 1901, and in the, the fury and the scandal and the aftermath of this event, and, it, and I happened to read it right as I was reading this, and it, it stuck out to me because it kind of points to the same thing. So on Wednesday, October 16th, 1901, President Theodore Roosevelt did something that had never been done before. He, as sitting president of the United States, invited a black man to the White House for dinner, Booker T. Washington. And he had dinner with his family. The outrage of that event is incredible. He immediately lost the support of the South, about a third of the North. The Congress, both houses, were on the verge of calling for a vote of no confidence. Roosevelt, being Roosevelt, never one to back down from a fight, doubled down. I'm going to meet with him every Wednesday night. Death threats poured in. If it hadn't been for his advisors, 
And Booker T. Washington himself saying, look, you're going to get us both killed. <laughs> and his advisors were like, yeah, and then what, that, what good's going to come of that? But a recurring complaint, all the headlines. Guys, books have been written about that dinner and its aftermath. A recurring com complaint that came and it was in all the headlines of all the major papers. Who does this man think he is? Roosevelt had the answer, I'm the president of these United States, that's who I am. But here's a man who, empowered by the authority of his office and his clear vision of, of right and wrong, and, and, and it's true that Teddy Roosevelt's uh, thoughts on race are not what ours might be, but he was a man who believed in attainment and accomplishment, and Booker T. Washington was a man of accomplishment, and so he, he was to be embraced in, in his worldview, in Teddy's worldview. But here's a man who is, who's being confronted by all sides of his social peerage. Who does this man think he is? And I was reminded of just how powerful social conventions can be. When we see things taking place in the life and ministry of Jesus, we, we don't understand how egregiously offensive these were. These weren't mere breaches of etiquette, little picadillos that, that can be overlooked. He's striking at core vital principles of their society, hence the outrage. Now, in this section here, verses 1 through 17, Matthew, who has, in general, back in chapter 4, in, in a broad stroke manner, he has talked about Jesus healing people, but, but there's no specific detailed accounts. Here he chronicles three. And what does he choose to do? What does he choose to include as his three accounts? Does he just take, you know, the, the, the righteous Jew who's sick with the tummy bug, uh, you know? No. Right out of the gate, he includes three excluded people. The first is a leper. The second is a Roman centurion. The third is an old woman. Now, Jesus was not afraid at all to violate the social convention. I mean, lepers. Oh my goodness. They're outcasts. The Romans, I mean, they hated Gentiles in general, but here's an oppressor. And an old woman. You, you got to remember that devout Jews would wake up and thank God that they weren't born a woman. They had twisted and perverted God's law. In God's law, a, a woman was unclean during her monthly cycle, but they had perverted it and twisted it, and a woman was born in uncleanness, and she stayed that way. They had no use. 
And in each case, Jesus has no compunction. And we see his compassion as he gingerly touches this leper. The centurion doesn't even ask him to come, and Jesus is voluntarily willing to go. He comes into Peter's house, and no one makes a request for healing. Jesus just sees her and does. Great, wonderful, awesome. But have you ever wondered, has it ever entered into your mind, why was Jesus so willing to do this? Why, why was he willing to, in some way, shape, or form, perhaps even, I don't know, appear to at least violate the holiness code of the law? Hadn't he, in chapter 5, in the great thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount, declared that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, he came to fulfill them. So when the law itself, he's Lord of the law, when the law itself says that a leper is to be outside the camp, not to be approached by anybody, why does Jesus seemingly, almost gleefully, disregard that? Have you ever wondered why it is that in the old covenant we see so clearly depicted in the book of Leviticus that God has a concern not just for sin, but for this thing called cleanness and uncleanness, for, for ritual and ceremonial purity. And how in the New Testament that, I don't know, that almost seems to have gone away. Have you ever thought about that? Why, why is God concerned about these things in the Old Testament but he doesn't seem to be in the New Testament. Did he just grow up? Did he just get over it? No. This passage at the end explains to us exactly why it is that our Lord freely embraces and that we can live free. So let's walk through it together. These 17 verses, as I said, have three episodes. There's the leper, there's the centurion, and then there's the mother-in-law of Peter. In verses 1 through 4, with the healing of the leper, there you go. You have the first specific recording of a miracle in the gospel of Matthew. It's incredible, because as you read this, Matthew is going to again and again throughout his whole gospel keep weaving through the concept of authority. Who does Jesus think he is? And he's getting to the point where you are continually called, who is Jesus? Who do I say that he is? And so you see this, this leper is in the crowd. Now this is audacious. The leper should not have been there. And he comes before the Lord. And I, I dis, I'm disappointed that so many English versions go soft on this word. It says that he came and knelt before him. See that word knelt? K-N-E-L-T. He knelt before him. 
that's not nearly strong enough. Once again, the venerable old King James translates it more precisely. You see, this, this word is, is uh, prostuneo. And it entered the Greek mind when, they, when, when Alexander's forces encountered the Persians. And the Persians believed that their king was, was divine. And so they would throw themselves on the ground, prostrate. And they would kiss the feet or the edge of the robe. It was a posture of complete degradation and acknowledging one's utter dependence. It was absolute submission. It is like your dog rolling over and showing you the belly. Okay, it is saying, I am yours, master. And Alexander loved that. And so, you know, he tried to get the Greeks to, to do the same for him. And his generals were like, man, you're our king, but we're not going to worship you. And he needed his generals, so he, you know, he had to stop. But that's the point at which that concept entered the Greek language and culture. And it became, because of its connotations, it became the word for worship. And so when the Old Testament was translated into Greek by the, in the Septuagint, whenever you see worship, it's, it's prostuneo. And, and whenever you see the word worshiper, the noun, it's simply the noun form of this word. And in, in other words, what this word is saying is something far more intense than simply genuflecting before him. He's simply tipping his hat or, or, or standing up to show a respect. He's throwing himself down, indicating his total submission. And then he says, Lord. By itself, Lord could just mean sir. By itself, this act of worship could be seen as just over-the-top submission taken together, and you have an audacious social occurrence here. The Jews were fiercely monotheistic, fiercely. And here you have a Jew, and you know he's a Jew because Jesus tells him to go follow the law, and here's a Jew doing what no Jew would do, throwing himself down in worship, Using the term translated Adonai. And here you have a man accepting it. Outrageous. And then you have the man speak. If you will, you can cure me. So the man understands his power. The man understands that the only thing that may grant or prohibit him from being cured is the sheer will of Jesus. And Jesus, with great compassion, gingerly reaches out and touches the man. I love that it includes that detail. And it says immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
And of course, Jesus says to go and offer the, offer the sacrifice that was prescribed by Moses because he had just finished talking about how he didn't come to abolish Moses. So go and, and do that. Okay, episode one. Episode two, the centurion comes and says, my servant is paralyzed and suffering. So he, he must have had some sort of accident or, or, or he must have had some serious disease where, where he was now almost on the verge of death. Either way, Jesus offers to come. And this man gets the highest praise of anyone in the Gospels because he understands authority. His experience in the Roman military, his experience as a soldier, had taught him the elementary principles of authority and how authority works. Every other person you see encounter Jesus has an almost magical or talismanic type perspective. Think about the woman with, think about the, woman with the, the blood flow. If I can just touch him, I'll be cured. Everybody else he encounters operates under the premise that Jesus has the power, but I must bring him to him. He must be touched in some way, shape, or form like there's a magical talisman. The centurion understood if Jesus has the power to heal, the way authority works is a leader gets stuff done even where he's not by virtue of the chain of command that exists. I'm a man under authority. I have to take orders, and there are people under me. They have to take orders. So my will is done even where I am not simply by virtue of the authority that I have. He understood that if Jesus had the authority to heal anywhere, that meant he had the authority to heal everywhere. And he understood that this implied, that this created order existed in some sort of, I know I'm using a military term, but there's some sort of chain of command. And the forces of nature are accountable and answerable to him. And so Jesus just marvels that this Roman officer's insight is such that he has faith that Jesus can do this from afar with but a word. Greater efficacy than Caesar. And then Jesus turns and expresses his marvel. And I love that it includes the word he marveled. Jesus is truly God. And so he's right to accept the worship of the leper. But Jesus is truly man. Which means that as a man, he experienced genuine emotion. And have you ever heard something that just made you marvel? I hope so. I hope you've lived enough to be amazed. Jesus was amazed. Truly God, truly man, one person. And then he gives the ominous words that many will come from east and west and recline but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. He expresses right here the principle. He corrects any misunderstanding that may have transpired in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount read one way can seem very legalistic. 
that doing righteousness is the way that you become a member of the kingdom. And, and here, Jesus uses the word faith. That he's been looking for faith. And so what we see in this passage is that all obedience is to be understood as evangelical obedience. And what we mean by that is first comes faith. The great belief that God is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do, and we believe in him. And then as a response or as the fruit of our faith, then we live our lives repenting daily of our sins, of walking in obedience to his commands. But it's in response to not seeking and anticipating. That would be legalistic righteousness, which is condemned. Jesus calls us to evangelical faith and obedience. And then he enters the third setting where he has Peter's mother-in-law. And here she's an old lady, an older lady, and no one even asks him to do anything. But he does. And he touches her as well. And not just does her fever break, but she's immediately restored to full strength. If you've been sick, you know your fever breaks. You can tell when your fever breaks. But that doesn't mean you're back at ready to, ready to do stuff yet. And, and, she's ready, and she's ready to rock and roll. Now, don't be cynical here. There may be some of you who are tempted to be like, yeah, woman, get up. I need, I need my, I'm going to heal you so you can go cook my dinner. That's not what's going on here. Her service this was not her house. This was Peter's house. There's a woman of the house, Peter's wife. Her service to Jesus is to be understood in light of the faith that had just been discussed a few verses before. This is the evangelical delight that I have been, I have been healed. And now with my, with my will, I'm going to engage it in the service of the one who has healed me. It's voluntary, it's spontaneous, and it's genuine. And that is what we are to honor, and that is what we are to pursue. And then you get to verse 17, that after that evening, and they bring all sorts of people to be healed, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Citing from Isaiah 53, verse 4. What? Does he mean? First, what he does not mean. There's a theological tradition that perverts the word of God and twists and lays great guilt upon people. And they cite passages like this as, as alleged proof texts. That namely, since Isaiah 54, 53 verse 4 takes place within the context of the chapter in which it's redemption that's being purchased, that what Jesus has purchased for you is physical healing. Therefore, God does not want his people to be sick or to suffer. And if you are, you're either disobedient or you don't have enough faith. 
in John 9, using that same mentality. Here's this pitiful poor man who's been born blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's been born blind? Because he's had a lifetime of hardship, of suffering, of ridicule, of mockery, teenage jerks casting pebbles at him, people tripping him, just being creeps. His whole life has been one long misery fest. Whose fault is it? Neither he nor his parents sinned. But this was brought about that the work of God might be displayed in him. And he healed him then. A lifetime of hardship and suffering appointed to this man so that in that moment the work of God might be displayed. Paul himself knows what that's like in 2 Corinthians 12 when there's this chronic thorn in the flesh that God will not remove. And the Lord tells him straight up, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus tells Peter, he alludes to the manner in which Peter would die and in so doing bring glory to him. Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane Lord, if possible, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. Intense, excruciating misery. This passage here is not saying that God's will for you is physical healing in every case. And if you have sickness, then you are to blame. It is not saying that, and it's abusive to say so. What does it mean? First, as I spoke at the beginning about how, how Jesus, how in the New Testament it doesn't seem like God cares about or is concerned about categories of cleanliness and uncleanliness. Where did that go? Where did that go? That went into Christ. The biblical truth is that every sickness, every illness, every uncleanness is a symptom, is a sign of the decay that has been wrought upon the world because of sin. Every ounce of human misery points us to the fact that the world is not made right and that sin is still here with its polluting effect. And Jesus goes on the cross to conquer sin, to undo the work of the devil, and that includes taking away the effect of sin in our cleanliness. And so when Jesus touches the leper, Jesus, he who is 
the light of the world, in whom is life itself. As he touches the leper, he does not become unclean. Darkness can no more exist in the presence of light than decay in the presence of the very author of life. And so you you must see, brothers and sisters, that when he touches the leper, the leprosy flees before the life from Jesus. And he restores that man. And when he, by a word, fixes nerves and fixes that servant's body so it quits contorting and, and, and agony, He's recreating sinews and connections, synapses. And when he touches that woman in all of her uncleanness, he's taking that upon himself. So the reason you and I don't have to fret about whether or not we are clean or unclean is because Christ has borne that. He took our uncleanness, our unacceptability, Upon himself and he bore it on the cross. So that in him we haven't just been made free of guilt. We've been washed clean. There's no more reason for shame. No reason to stand far off. I'm not worthy. Jesus comes near, accepts you, and he takes your shame and your filth upon himself. Second, all the miracles of Jesus, all the miracles of the apostles serve the purpose of underscoring the message that a new age had begun in Christ. It's a foretaste. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. What we, what we have here is a foretaste of what it will be like when he comes again to consummate the kingdom. It's a foretaste of how the the damage wrought by a fallen world will be undone and reversed and things will be restored to a pre-fall state. But third, it cannot be overlooked. That while we are not Jesus, we are not the Savior of the world. Do not carry a Christ complex, okay, a Messiah complex. Nonetheless, we are called to be his hands and feet, his body. And Jesus here, in selecting these three outsiders to highlight in the word of God as the three example, he's reminding us. That as we bring his message, as we bring his mercy, as we bring his kingdom into the world, we must not, we must not stay far off and withdrawn and distant from the outcasts. And I'm thrilled to say that generally speaking throughout the church's history, we, while everyone else is fleeing the black death, Christians are going in. That's not rare. That's that's how it goes. 
No one gives more money than American evangelical Christians to alleviate world suffering. Don't let anybody gaslight you into saying that's not true. No one gives more. No one sends more people. But I don't want you to pat yourself on the back about the big picture. Bring it in home. One, are you resting in the great healer who bears not only the guilt of the offenses, but the consequence and the shame and the uncleanness of the offenses? Are you resting in Christ? Are you trusting in his authority? Are you, like the centurion, acknowledging that he is Lord everywhere? And are you acknowledging, like the leper, that you have utter and complete dependence upon him? And have you shown Jesus the belly and acknowledged that he is your absolute sovereign? And then, having received grace, have you arisen to go and be a vessel of grace? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the tender mercy of Jesus on display. We thank you for him, our great healer, taking our sicknesses, our illnesses, and all the discomfort and uncleanness thereof into himself. And we thank you how Jesus heals us completely. We look forward to the great return of our Lord in which all things will be made new. Grant, O oh God, that we would mirror his mercy and his compassion. Grant that in everything we would point to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen.